Welcome to the next episode of the Doing Things Better and Doing Better Things podcast. Um, this one, I've been talking to uh, Johnny Webb from um, Sundog uh, Pictures, Sundog Productions. Um, I'll leave Johnny to explain what Sundog is all about, but um, we live, in, uh, we live at ti- in times where TV is either brilliant or dreadful. The best of the world or the worst of the world is beamed into our, our living rooms most evenings. Actually, I'm going to change that because I don't know many people that actually watch it live anymore. But it's beamed into our computers. Um, and some of that stuff's amazing and some of it is absolutely appalling. And it's really hard to make really sensible and beautiful programs appealing to the masses. And that's where, where Johnny goes. So um, hopefully you'll enjoy this and um, and you'll, you'll have seen the stuff that he makes for certain. You may not just have realised that there's one amazing company behind it. Johnny, who yes. are you? What do you do? Um, my name is Johnny Webb. I am the co-founder and CEO of Sundog Pictures which is a production documentary production company based in London. And why is, um, why is Sundog different? Um, well, I guess to a degree that's in the eye of the beholder, but I think what we wanted to do differently when we set it up was to tell stories that matter and shine a light on really, really important things in the world, but done with a sort of lightness of touch and an accessibility that allowed people to find out about things that they didn't even know that they wanted to know about. Oh, that's interesting. So it's, it's almost kind of like unleashing a pent-up desire or a repressed desire for things, but stuff they didn't actually have an appetite for in the first place. Interesting. Who's we? Who did you set it up with? Um, I set it up with my business partner, Sam Branson, um, and we both had a real passion for... I guess um, bringing new audiences to important and serious subjects. Really, I always think about I always think about people having done a shift, you know, at ASDA, and they get home, and it's like, do you want to watch something about child protection? Maybe not, but actually, those kinds of stories are really important. So, I think it's our job to go and find those stories that help people understand more about their world but actually deliver them in a way that actually you don't feel you're doing homework. I, I think that's that. the thing for me. Making the difficult palatable. So I, I, I'll always remember the first, one of the first shows I saw of yours was uh, Reggie Yates' show in Russia. Yeah. And if you'd have said to me, sit down for an hour and watch a programme about extreme nationalism, I'd have said, do you know what? I might just fiddle on my phone as we do these days instead. And I was hooked. Yeah. I was hooked because, number one, Reggie's an unbelievably human presenter, and you, you, he's like Velcro, you want, to, you want to stick to him. But number two, you brought this ugly side of the world into my living room, and it was, it was fascinating. Mm. Did you, when you set it up, well, let's go back a bit, when you set it up, what did you think was wrong with normal documentary? What did you think was missing in that genre? I think our idea was to do something that just felt much more immersive. Because if a story's got a present tense, I think people are much more likely to sort of lean into that because there's something unfolding in front of them as opposed to something in the past tense that's got an end and you can kind of look the end up. But that's not to say that 
historical stuff and and past tense stories are interesting. But I think what we set out to do was give something, give it that really seat of the pants unfolding sort of sense to it. So you never quite knew what was going to happen. And certainly that was the way we ran those productions. So Reggie would always, like any presenter, any author, would want to be fully briefed on what he was walking into. And we found a we found a sort of middle ground with him where he was briefed enough, but he still didn't quite know who he was meeting or what was going to happen because I think that was the magic. I agree. Of, of what people were seeing. It was sort of like, wow, these people are really objectionable or these people are really vulnerable. You know, what's going to happen next? That, I mean, that take, there's, there's a few things to pick up there. So, so firstly, starting without a real end in, in mind or, or allowing the end to, to, to move as the show develops yeah. because you don't know where it's going to go with, with Reggie's conversations and the people you're talking to. Interesting, yeah. fascinating. Not very TV at all. I love it. And the second thing is the trust that Reggie must have or any of the presenters must have in, in you is astonishing. Yeah. Well, do you know what? So just to answer your first point, I don't think it's that we didn't know where we wanted the story to go because I think we always go into those relationships with BBC Three or Channel Four, whoever it might be, we'll always know the sort of narrative arc of the story. So we always have an endpoint in our minds, and we all and we always know what's at stake, because you need to know what, what what's the jeopardy of the story, because that's the thing that people cling to. Really. It's that tension, isn't it? Yeah. So you have that arc, but it's then it, 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 going into those individual scenes. That's, I think, where some of that magic happens because it genuinely is unscripted and you really don't quite know. But broadly, I mean, the st- it's interesting that the films that, that work best for me are the ones where he really pushes against a character. In the far-right film, it was a, uh, a far-right leader called Demushkin, or even in the Preacher episode, which is yeah. in the, the first South Africa series and Borat, and it was a cat and mouse between him and the Preacher. And those are the films that... I think really shine through for me and you don't always get that again because that happens sure. in the, you know on location basically it's really it, it is fascinating and you are you are tackling deeply uncomfortable issues and and, and, and making them human um, how do you begin to plan a series and then how do you begin to plan an episode or do you be plan the episodes and that becomes the series how does the creative process work when you're looking at a range of shows or do you find a problem and then make how, how does where do you start um god yeah where do you start well there are loads of places to start where do you start some people I, 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 personally I often think it's about starting with the things that you are genuinely interested in and then um so if I take, um, well, I t- I'll give you an example. So um, Mary Porters has recently done a film which we loved making with her called um, Barbie, the most famous doll in the world. Yeah, I saw it. And that started with us reading an article about how Mattel had recently launched a plus-sized and a mixed-race Barbie. So w- w- was that a really interesting way to look at body image and gender neutrality and issues of race through Barbie. And again, that goes back to my earlier point about, you know, just you take a subject that's kind of massive, but actually that's a really, really interesting and sometimes funny 
lens to look at some big issues through a doll. So we we sat with that idea for six months and um, we were trying to work out what it was and was it a series and how much time did we spend with, with Mattel who owned Barbie and actually it wasn't until somebody said what if we had a presenter in it and actually what if Mary Porter did it because it would be funny and she could really get into some of the insights that were coming out of, of this toy in the retail industry and it was at that moment when Mary said she wanted to do it that it cracked the whole idea open That's and then we could all see it but we sat with that idea for six months trying to work out what the shape was before we got there. And that, and that confluence of idea, problem, opportunity, and then the, the, the face or, the, or, the, or the, the humanness of it, that all needs to gel in one lump. Yeah. And that can sit for a while. That can sit for a while. And also, by, by nature of documentary and the sort of, you know, we're quite miserablest here and we get into some really difficult subjects. But also that that requires an immense amount of trust from people opening their lives up to us when they've only known us for days or, or at best for weeks. So, you know, another film that I'm massively proud of is the film we did with David and Ivor Badil about their father, who's got a rare kind of dementia. And that was incredibly brave that they allowed us into their lives to explore something which was deeply personal to them about their relationship with their father and what they wanted from him and how they managed you know the family in the face of this disease and and all the rest of that um and that was that was an incredible journey to go on with them it's an incredibly touching um film and why do people why do you think i mean they clearly trusted you implicitly why do you think people trust you? That's a good question. Um, why do people trust me? Why do they trust Sundog? Well, um, is it Sundog or is it you? Well, I think it's individuals at Sundog, definitely, because ultimately it might be the director or it might be one of the exec producers here. It, it, ultimately, it's what you and I are doing now, which is eyeballing each other. It's true. <laughs> And I think if somebody sat with somebody and saying, I, I, I want to tell your story because it's incredibly important and, I, and, and, and uh, you know, I respect you and your place in this story, that's got to be a contract, a, 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 a human contract between two people. So whoever it is, it's definitely a very personal thing. I suppose that's the point, isn't it? it that, it's a exactly. very, very, very personal thing. And that's where I wanted to get to. I mean, people buy people um, and they buy why you do things rather than what you do. And it's it's really clear to me that you, Sundog, everyone I've met here, you are not normal. Do you not you, think? No. I've met lots of TV companies and you, you are... Very, very different. There is an. There feels to me to be an authenticity, and a passion for change, which I haven't seen in other places. And I'm not saying that people in other TV companies don't give a shit. I'm not saying that at all because I've met some that no, do. Some amazing people. Completely. But it, it 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 seems to me that the DNA of Sundog is different. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you maybe maybe what it is in part, which um, sounds terribly earnest thing to say, but I'll say it anyway. Is, is, it's just how we measure what we do. And I think for most Indies, making crafting beautiful films or crafting beautiful award-winning films is an end in itself. 
And don't get me wrong, I love doing that. But I think ultimately we exist to help create change in the world. And I think that's probably what's slightly different, that we're as motivated as, to, you know. So it's like, how are we going to tell a film to, to really help people see things in a different way? And that does ask slightly different things of you as a producer in a way, or at least it perhaps creates some slightly different conversations in the room. As a producer and as a presenter. Yeah. And, and, and that's what I wanted to try and get to. That, that's where I see the variation between you and the rest of your peers. That's why you stand head and shoulders. And I think that's really clear when you talk to people. That's, that's I think, why people buy you, if I'm honest. I think that's why they, that's why they trust you. What I'm really interested in is, is, is how that continues in, in, in a world where, well, let's go back a stage. Do you often have the networks saying, nah, too worthy, or, or do, how do you take an idea to one of the, the many channels yeah. and ensure that they care as much as you do, that they carry it with the same loving arms that you carry it with? How do you do that? ton of questions in that question. <laughs> I'm just trying to sift through them all. So do does the commissioning community in the UK care about really important uh, issues? Yeah, massively. You know, it's a, there's some utterly brilliant, curious, um, uh, well-intentioned people that, that work in the world of factual particularly. Um, are, are they under stresses and strains to create um, you know critical hits that loads and loads of people want to watch at a time when lots of all the ratings are threatened on channels yes so there is there are tensions there are definitely tensions I think um, God I could answer that in a number of ways I mean the thing the obvious thing that comes to mind at the moment is actually what so in the new world creating really gorgeous single films is quite difficult it's difficult you don't make a lot of money out of it very hard for the networks for the broadcasters to sort of market those films in a way that cut through and there's this big talent attached you know like so you think about um, Chris Packham on autism mm. on, on the BBC the other day we didn't make that but I thought that was a really beautiful beautiful film with a brilliant director Charlie Russell and I, and I really really like that nevertheless it's really hard to get those films made and to get an audience to them and so we often ask ourselves now, what, what are the story factories? How do we design ideas in a way that allows for multiple stories to come through? And, uh, you know, and the, story, the obvious story factories would be things like um, 24 Hours in A&E, mm -hmm. where you're in one precinct or you're in one part of the world, and it's a way of capturing stuff that's going on. So that's the focus for us. And, that, and, and it's, it's how you, what's the creative process to get to that? Well, often you start with a story, but you have to just keep stepping back. Pull the lens out and out and out and out and out. Yeah. You know, what, what, so what else are you now looking at? Oh, okay, you're looking at, you're looking at, um, you, you were looking at an A&E department, then you're looking at a hospital, and then suddenly you're looking at a hospital trust, and you've got four hospitals within that trust. Well, that's a slightly different lens again which is the hospital series for BBC Two, which yeah. talking about lots of things that we haven't made. But, you know, that's interesting. And so there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a creative process where you're pulling lens out and pushing the lens back in and just seeing what, how, how that changes your perspective, basically, whether you look at the story slightly differently, I suppose. 
That's really interesting. And, and there's, obviously there's been a growth in those kind of programs and, and, and they're multi-stranded. So you're, you're, you're picking up a story, dropping it, looking at somebody else's and then coming back to it. There's almost like a comedian's callback to the different strands within that story. It's quite complex to watch sometimes. Yeah. Where do you think the demand for that type of storytelling came from? Do you think the networks create demand or do you think the, the viewer sat at home is the real is the real change in, in, in demand? Is, do you think they're wanting different, better TV or do you think more demanding to watch? Or is it the change the network's trying to create? God, I don't know. I think that... The, the, the hunger for, for great stories and the hunger to know more about our world has never been greater. And I, one of the things that used to wind me up, when I first started at Sundog, you know, often people would say, oh, young, you know, some people would say to me, oh, young people don't really want to watch documentaries anymore. And, that, and what's the evidence for that? Well, the evidence for that is that telly's getting older and older and older. You know, even Channel 4, which is supposedly, people think of Channel 4 as a younger channel. I think the average age is late 40s. Um... You, we might want to verify that, but um, it's certainly older than you might imagine. Sure. And so why is that? Is that because we as producers and broadcasters are, um, we're not making programmes that younger people, and when I say younger, I just mean people of a younger mindset or under 40s want to watch? Or is it because um, they just don't come to TV like they used to? And it's about different platforms. And I, I kind of think it's very complicated. I think it's about all of those things. It's interesting. My next question was going to be about about platforms and and about t, you know TV as the as the bonfire in the or, or or the kind of like yeah the bonfire in the past where you all cuddled around it you all sat and watched yeah a broadcast and and now narrow casting and 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 getting information out to the viewer happens in different ways in twenty four hours a day it's fragmented has that created more opportunity than it has problems it will create more opportunity when the money follows all of the new opportunities that's interesting so i think we're in this like a lot of spaces where there's we're in this rapid change so there are lots of places to make really really fantastic short films we do a lot of shorts here so there's lots of places to make short films the question is how do they get paid for so at the moment, we, we get paid by brands to do shorts. Sometimes we get paid by broadcasters to do shorts. Sometimes we do them ourselves, and we put them out for different reasons. But also, it won't be long before, you know, already Facebook is starting to commission, BuzzFeed is starting to commission. Yeah. So you can see a whole new part of the, of the ecology start, you know, starting to fire up, and everyone will jump there. I always think, I always think we... we, we we get lost in people often say to me, Oh, how long should it be? or what platforms are gonna live on? Sometimes that's helpful, but actually it's just about the story. Curi- it is about the story, right? Create curiosity and humanity. Totally. And sometimes a story is worthy of a really fantastic, short, sharp, three minute film on Facebook with subtitles because that's what the story deserves. Another time the story needs ninety minutes where you're on a massive screen and I have got you. I've got you for an hour and a half and you've got to just fall into character and story and breathe and then you can do different things. And all of those things are valid. And guess, you know, sometimes I think you could watch the same story in each of those places, formats, yeah. in each of those formats and you get you take a slightly different thing away. I so, think that's true. You know, 
It, and it isn't binary anymore. It, it isn't. It isn't short form or long form. It isn't old media or new media. It isn't narrow casting or broadcasting. We consume information, and it, it's information. It's not just entertainment anymore. But but where I see what you've done shining is the is that the, the, there's a there's a blend of the two. It's fascinating, and and in other formats, the made in whatever formats, Chelsea and that sort. Of, that's not that's just not working for me mm. but it's undeniably popular yeah so how do we shift the Made in Chelsea Geordie Shaw I'm not knocking any of them I don't get it but, but I'm not knocking them they work mm. how do we shift that viewer towards your product or are, are they already there and it's okay for them to consume different types of media like that I think we're already there I think the difference probably is that the, the the broadcast industry still thinks as there. So let's take immersive storytelling, Reggie Yates, Stacey Dooley, um, Livy Haydock, you know, those kind of yeah. classic BBC Three docs, which are fantastic. I think a lot of people go, that's sort of young person's programming. And I would disagree with that because mm. I would say it's a different way of, it's a slightly different way of making films. It shouldn't be every way, but actually there's a lot more room to play with that kind of storytelling all over, all over BBC One to Channel Four, um, that are, are, you know, that I think would sort of change, would bring a younger audience in. And how do how do you begin that change? Is there something that needs to change at the commissioning level? Is there something that needs to change at, at, at a higher level, a DG level? What? I'm t- that's not I'm just talking about the BBC, I'm not. Mm. What what needs to change to make that, to break that model? How do we disrupt TV in a really positive way? Well, what can you think of? What would you think of something that you've seen? What's an example of something that you've seen on TV that's disruptive? I can't. Your stuff. Planet, um, Blue Planet. It's not disruptive, it's standard. Yeah, changes the way you think about shit, though. Yes. Do you know what? Some of Mary's stuff's good. I rewatched when she went into failing stores. I can't remember what that show was called. Queen of Shops. That was good. I can't think of anything else that's been disrupted. I can't think. And and that that means either don't watch enough telly. Hands up. That might be true. Yeah. Or it means that there has been anything disruptive, and I don't know which one it is. Yeah. I would say, for me, I would say, if we're not careful, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because everybody in television says, actually, younger people don't really watch telly anymore, so we need to make more telly for the people that are watching it. Scary And that is a sort of vicious circle. Mm. And it's about... I think the bravery to say, yeah, the under 40s or the under 35s or whatever demo it is you're looking at are going in lots of other places and there's lots of competition, including Netflix and Amazon and everything else. But actually, they're around and they love stories because they're human beings. That's how we communicate with each other. Absolutely. So let's get them back. So who needs to change? Who go back to that? My original question: Who needs to make that change? Oh, oh. Is that is that at the channels? I think it's all of us, but yeah, it's at the channels, 
It's about the kind of talent that we're finding as producers. It's about the stories that we're, you know, attuned to and looking for. And how do it's, it's interesting. I, I listen to a lot of radio. Yeah. Radio Four is my favourite station. Has been since I was fifteen, which makes me very unusual. But I, I, I love it. It just, it, I turn it on. I want to turn it off. I'm cleverer than when I turned it on. Yeah. Every, every single time. That's brilliant. Isn't it? And you can't I say that, that about a lot of channels. And I don't mean radio channels. I mean media channels. How do we create a media business that that allows us to? To flip between radio, then into TV, how do we, and then and then onto Netflix, and then maybe onto YouTube. That kind of liquid, organic movement of 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 of, of entertainment and and education that, that kind of skates across them all. The B, only the BBC can do that, can't they? In an obvious way like that, you're right, because you could, you know, if they're doing, and this is where they're brilliant. If they're doing a campaign on bullying or something. You might get that in EastEnders. You might get feature on the one show. You might have it on the news. You might have it on Newsnight. So you can do it. And you, you have it on Radio it. One. Yeah. And, and it might be on BBC Bite Size. Totally. Totally. So you've got all these different ways of getting uh, messages through in that way, which is, which, is, which is amazing. It is. So why haven't Apple bought ITV? Why haven't Google bought ITV? Well, if, if, if these big platforms, why haven't they bought one of the terrestrial companies, not necessarily just in the UK, why have mm. they done that? Seems to me to be, I mean, ITV seems like really good value to me at the moment. Why well, bought it? I think there is something about the Silicon Valley, can we call them the fangs? Have you heard that? No, I haven't, but I'm interested. Honestly, I'm such a media won't come here. I use that four times a day now. So Facebook, Apple, Netflix, Google. Um, so we talk about them all the time. Well, they're classic Silicon Valley companies. They hate legacy systems. They love fighting the establishment, don't they? So they're all, yeah. they're all, are they, have they all got ambitions to be in content for sure? Totally. So that's just, we're just starting to feel that as British producers. That's obviously, we've got a relationship with Netflix, but you can, you know, Apple, I imagine Apple, Google, they'll all be commissioning us within the next two years. It's just how they deliver that. And, then, and so they could go back to my point about currently, as things stand, the BBC is the only one to offer that liquidity between media. Not when Apple own you or use you, not when Google use you. The opportunities to be that disruptive, um, all-pervasive educating business increases as those platforms take broadcast more seriously. Or does it? Is your question how do how do the, how do those individual companies have the most impact? Is it no, about impact? No, it, it is. It is about impact. And, and 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 so okay, let me deconstruct the question because it isn't clear. So, firstly, in terms of getting impact, being multi-channel, multi-platform, being able to flow between different broadcast routes, that seems sensible at the moment. Only one company in the UK can do that. With the growth of those other content-hungry platforms, that allows competitors to emerge that we would ne- we've previously never dreamt of. At that point, you become really valuable. Yeah. And, and, and I'm really intrigued as to, as to how you manage the change from Sundog as much as how they manage the change from 
apple or the fangs. But then, but, but going back to why you were saying very kindly that you think we're slightly different, and, and I think part of that is because we do feature docs. We do. We I wasn't do being kind. That was just true. Well, that is true. We do. We do impact work here, right? So we we every year we make a film or a series of shorts that has a very explicit campaign link to it to yeah. to make a change in the world. So at the moment, we are um, we we're just firing up for twenty eighteen, which is going to be all about education and looking at the education the global education system, yeah. and looking at you know frankly what isn't fit for purpose in the states and here and what the, alter- the best alternatives are around the world and fit that together in one sort of glorious film. And that, so what will we use for that? Well, that will be a cinema release, but also we'll be making loads of shorts for Facebook and YouTube. Nice. And we might have a face right at the heart of that um, who's brilliant talent. We may not. But I suppose, I suppose, I don't know whether I'm answering your question, I'm answering it in a slightly different way, is that actually what we can do now is we can cherry pick that you the, are the, the, the menu doesn't have to come through one yes, organization that's it. I mean it's kind of handy if it does because you've you know it's a one-stop shop but you don't need that I always think because well, I've been in and around the internet because I'm a veteran I'm ancient been in and around the internet for quite a long time and I remember in the early days we talked a lot about creating destinations didn't we and actually at some point I think we all went hang on a minute let's just go where everyone else goes. Let's just hang out where they hang out. And there's probably only four or five places, really. Yeah. So, so it is about building those environments. It is about finding you know, Facebook's role in the overall. You know, if, if, our, if our intention next year is to help parents and children think slightly differently about their education and, and, the, and the exam factory they're going through, how do I use all of those spaces where people are hanging out with each other and being social to talk about it? Sure, sure. And you answered a better question, so thank you, because I haven't quite said it properly. But the education thing is fasc- absolutely fascinating. We, we've, we've done state education, one's gone through gentle private education, and we've home educated. Yeah. And, um, and Have home, you done all three? Yeah, and home education Amazing. isn't you sat at home with your kids. That's not, it's a misnomer. Yeah. Home education is a group of maybe 20, and they generally are all mums, 20 mums working together with maybe 40 kids. Um, and the home education model is much more social than people ever believe it is. And trust me, there's nothing more antisocial than being at school and still on, in the corner of the playground on your own. Yeah. So no matter, the proximity to other children doesn't make it social. But but it's really fascinating, that point, and, and, and maybe we'll finish on this, because... The way that that, that kids, the way that young people learn isn't through school anymore. It's just bad childcare at at its worst and it's great childcare at its best. I lecture at uni and I teach at schools and the people I teach learn more when they're not at school than when they are at school. And they learn more through watching Reggie Yates on iPlayer or on 4OD or on catch up in some way than they learn in their lessons yeah so you're already part of the solution but putting a lens on what's happening here in the states in korea interesting model different extremes and what's happening in scandinavia particularly finland as i'm certain you you, you're on top of that um those two broad approaches that sit opposite each other fascinating absolutely absolutely fascinating and what's brilliant is i've got um I've got an 11-year-old and a 14-year-old, and so I'm coming at it as a as a producer, trying to get my head around the subject and, and trying to find stories and how you link those things together. But it's also changing the way... It's changing the conversations I have with my kids and their teachers 
and the school that they're at as I as I get into it, and it's completely changed my perspective. And that is, I love that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That is that is that's back to my unfolding story. It's like being in the moment. I love. <laughs> I, I absolutely love that comment because because it's it's making you as you make it, and. It's rare that that happens. We normally go into it with a set view, but the fact that it's changing your views as you're, as you're working on it. Yeah. You should talk to um, Kate Robinson um, at... Um, uh, One Young World. Never Grey. Oh, no. uh, Never Grey and Institute of Innovation, Institute of Ideas. Oh. Some amazing stuff really? on education here. Yeah, and they launched the... Um, the Institute of Ideas or the Institute of Innovation. I'm so, so Institute of Ideas. It was last week. They launched it last week. Oh really? Uh, yeah, I was fortunate enough to be at the launch, and it she, she is all over education. She she's amazing, absolutely amazing. Be really really useful touch point. Look, Johnny. I don't think Sundog would be like Sundog is if Johnny wasn't like Johnny is. <laughs> and you're of the right size to have some like proper personality within your business. How much of that is you and how much of that is Sam? Or are you as one? Um, how much? Uh, uh, oh, I think it, we are as one. So um, I don't know whether he'll mind me telling this story, but when I first met him, he'd written a business plan. And um, we chatted for an hour. We got on like a house on fire and he was meeting somebody else and he gave me the business plan. And I had a quick look at it and I said, oh, this has got every single number in it, it's got everybody's salary, it's got everything that you were, you're planning to do. Are you sure you want me to look at this? Of course I'm sure. Have a look at it, see what you think. I'll be back in now, let's talk about it. And I was so moved by his openness to just being open to change and being open to the stuff around him. Because I love that, I really love that. So that was the thing actually, that was the thing where I thought I, I, you and I should be doing this together. That's brilliant. And long may you continue to do so. <laughs> Genuinely amazing company and I can't thank you enough for your time. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Very much. So what I got from that is that despite we've got changing um, consumption patterns of, of media, there's still a really big role for traditional broadcast. And... There's a responsibility on broadcasters not just to feed us saccharine, sugary shit. There's a responsibility to, to actually inform and educate but not bore. And engaging people that wouldn't normally watch this stuff is really, really important. And you do that with, with the style of programme that you produce. But you also do it with the presenter. And I think that like for me, Sundog just have got such a fresh approach and, and give a different understanding of a problem. And they are brilliant at choosing the right presenters. And, you know, if we want to see a better world, which everyone at Sundog does, and I guess everyone listening to this podcast does, um, then we need to embrace things like, like TV. You know, it's not all bad. It, it, it's frustrating the conversations that I have with people that normally start with, yeah, well, you know, I don't watch TV anymore. Um, actually, it's good. There's some great stuff out there. And increasingly, if we want to move the masses, then we need to, we need to look at the messages that we put out through that media. And, and I think that we've, you know, it's very easy to become a little bit snobbish about this stuff. But actually, 
I, I prefer a world where a family or a group of people were sat around watching one thing than you've got 20 people in different rooms watching different things, or 20 is a big family, to be fair. Um, even me with my four kids is like six people. So six people in six different rooms watching this sort of splintered media consumption. So in many ways, I, I long for those days of, of the dominance of telly. And, and I guess by changing what we produce, we will slowly shift people's view and, and make and help people become more aware of the things that they're doing and, and the world that we live in. So I really enjoyed recording that. Um, amazing company, amazing team. Um, teams always win. And, you know, long, long may they continue. Um, thank you for listening. Uh, if you've got any, um, any suggestions for people you'd like me to talk to or you'd like me to talk to you, just get in touch. Um, mark at thisisape.co.uk or leave a message after the um, podcast. I think you can do that. And um, yeah, have a, have a great whatever the part of the day you're in leads on to. Cheers.